My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. So glad to have you here with us. I'm your host, Jason P. Woodbury, and this week on the show, I'm joined by Jason Stern and Don Fleming of the Lou Reed Archive, two return guests who are back in the transmission zone to discuss Lou Reed's Tai Chi practice and his recently reissued album of meditation music, Hudson River Wind Meditations. Uh, but before we hear from that duo of Lou fanatics, uh, how about another duo of Lou fanatics? I'm joined by Tyler Wilcox of Aquarium Drunkard and Doom and Gloom from the Tomb, who's one of the most essential follows if you're a fan of, of Lou Reed. And I wanted to wrap with him a little bit before we get into this week's podcast. Tyler, how are you doing over there? I'm doing great. Always happy to talk about Lou Reed. I, I I get the sense that that is definitely the case based on um, the fact that we have talked about Lou Reed and you are a, a, a great, as I mentioned, a great source of Lou ephemera and uh, info. Uh, you know, obviously having Jason and Don on, this is their second time they've been on the show. Um, we got to cover so much ground in that first episode because anytime I get a chance to talk with these guys, I don't want to just talk about you know, the project that our conversation is pegged to. Yeah. So we talked about uh, words and music a little bit that last time. On this talk, we talk a lot about Hudson River Wind Meditations, which was reissued by Light in the Attic. Um, that's one of those, you know, that and Lulu being his last two albums mean that the Lou, you know, his official recording discography ends on these two strange notes. I was curious, did you... Uh, engage with this record when it first came out, uh, uh, you know, more than a decade ago? Yeah, Hudson River Wind Meditations came out. And I mean, I just, you know, as a just somebody who followed Lou's career, I was interested in it. And I thought it was sort of a uh, kooky kind of thing to do. But I did. I mean, I, I actually I mean, this is going back so far that I can remember downloading it from eMusic, which is, you know, yeah. youngsters out there. It was an early MP3 uh, downloading site, and I think it might still exist in some form or another. But it obviously is sort of gone in the gone in the past at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember listening to it and liking it quite a bit, actually. I mean, I think and I think other people have noted it as well. But it felt like the sort of uh, other other side of metal machine music in a lot of ways. It's very um, you know, it is repetitive, it is minimal, but it, it's definitely a gentler version of that uh, vibe. But I, I mean, yeah, I, I thought I, you know, I really enjoyed uh, that sort of thing. I almost was like, I kind of wouldn't mind if he had done three more of those kind of records and kind of explored that more. Um, right. But that, yeah, that period is interesting because I do feel like Lou was getting back in touch with his 
more avant-garde roots in a lot of ways. So it was fun to kind of have that. You know, I mean, at that time, he was playing with like John Zorn and obviously collaborating with Laurie Anderson um, and the Metal Machine Trio and all that sort of stuff. So he was kind of, it was cool to see him moving away from like the you know, being being Lou Reed who gets up and plays Sweet Jane, which he was still doing right. to some extent. Um, yeah, time, yeah. But he was like going and playing like the stone in New York, which, you know, is like the the mecca of improv experimental arts, too. So, you know, he was he was getting into it. <laughs> I think that that's all such a fascinating. I mean, when I think about artists who left on a note of creative defiance he's like in that category as was scott walker as is you know david bowie i always think of like black star lulu and soused the final scott walker slash sun collaboration i always think of those as like a trilogy in some sense right but lou is also he's got lulu but he's also got uh, over to the side this record which is meditative and obviously like you talked about the metal machine trio he was really engaged again in this sort of feedback odyssey uh layered stuff and even though hudson river wind meditations is like certainly a more relaxing or contemplative piece it's not without its own sort of um tensions and and sustained quality so it's really it's really a fascinating one something that comes up a lot in this conversation with the guys is just lou reed as like a a fan of kung fu on a pop cultural level right everybody thinks of that i think of the magazine cover where he's got the sword and it's like a very dynamic uh it's a very dynamic photo I'm curious when you look back at Lou as, uh, you know, particularly through the lens of that Kung Fu or martial arts like fandom, you know, what do you think is interesting to you about about that side of Lou? Yeah, I mean, I I think I think he was sort of an interesting I mean, as far as like his interest in it, I'm sure that it came from I mean, like a lot of people who got into martial arts, it came from you know, maybe the more sort of, I don't know, I mean, not necessarily exploitative part of it, but kind of like this, I mean, like seeing Bruce Lee movies or something. I think I remember reading a story that that was sort of one of the main bonding things that him and Robert Quine had was they didn't, you know, they played guitar a little bit together, but a lot of times when they were getting to know each other, they would go to, uh, you know, some Times Square theater that was showing uh, all these Kung Fu movies and watch like 10 of them or something. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sure that he came to it sort of that way as sort of like, oh, like this, I just sort of enjoy this like world and this sort of entertainment value of it and everything. But um, it became something that was, you know, obviously extremely important to him. You read that book, The the Art of the Straight Line, I and mean, there's so much like, you know, it's almost like it's a double life for him going through a lot of that over the last, you know, 30 years of his life almost. Um, yeah, I mean both like on a on a spiritual level it clearly helped him sort out things that he needed to sort out you know and then obviously on a physical level you know it really coincided with him getting healthy and really starting to take care of himself in a much more um you know concerted way i think about how you know when i reflect on 
Lulu, I think about how um, so much of the rage in that record seems to come from that sense of uh, loss of of physical strength, you know, or diminished physical strength. And so I think like, it's clear that like his, his desire to take care of himself and to be a strong person was something that was important to him, you know? Um, yeah. And I think it really comes through in, in his dedication to, to Tai Chi practice. And it's just cool. I mean, you mentioned that, that cover of that, that magazine where it is just like, it, it, it's also sort of this fun thing where you're like, like, ah, yes, Lou Reed, like the total geek, you know, like he like there are things because, I mean, he was somebody who just got, you know, like he his interests, he got very focused on them, whether it was like guitars or gear or that sort of thing. He got I mean, he just geeked out on a lot of stuff. So I think like probably Kung Fu, he was like, like, I really like this. Whoa, what the hell is this? And then like suddenly, you know, he was very much <laughs> focused on it yeah. and very into it and you know collecting things and talking to people and doing all that stuff so um it's an interesting i i kind of like it almost humanizes him in a way because i feel like it is sort of just sort of him geeking out about things and wanting to trace it back to you know some kind of source and bring it into his life and have all that happen yeah for sure for sure i think about how yeah his 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 interest in gear, his interest in tech, you know, these are like, like you said, the sort of like when he would just go into nerd, nerd mode and just like get really into something. Yeah, he was into like, I mean, he was into all the way too. He was into like EC comic books. So he was like a guy who, you know, in a lot of ways was, you know, an archetypal nerd in some ways, a comic book shares that guy. Yeah. You know, shares that with jerry garcia yeah. uh jerry garcia another big ec head, yeah, right? yeah i think uh, they love that stuff yeah yeah that's fantastic to think about um well before we roll into the interview uh you know like i said you're always good at rounding up interesting dave you know sorry let me rephrase you're always so good at rounding up interesting lou reed stuff uh i wondered if maybe we could talk about a few pieces that are up over at aquarium drunkard of yours that folks should uh check out after they finish listening to this conversation with the guys yeah i mean i i did like last fall i spoke with will hermes who's the author of uh you know a recent um Lou Reed biography. That's great. Everybody should check it out if you're interested in Lou Reed. Um, so there's an interview with Will up. Um, and then over the past couple of years, I've done sort of like uh, put together some 50th anniversary appreciations of um, Berlin, uh, Lou's 1973 record um, and Transformer also from 73, um, putting together like alternate versions of those records through various, you know, bootlegs and demos and things like that that are you know i mean they're interesting for me to kind of uh uh, go they're interesting for everybody to to dig in on i mean i mean it yeah you do a great job presenting these parallel dimensions yeah i mean he's one of those people where yeah he had such a long live performance career that you can see him going through those those records which are you know both thought of as at this point two of his masterpieces, but he was always kind of revisiting them and figuring out how they worked in his, you know, I mean, obviously changed a lot over his career, but he could always come back to certain songs and be like, what the hell is this? How am I going to make this work for my <laughs> current <laughs> lunus? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So it's it's those are those are fun to do. Um, I mean, I was just I was thinking about it because I was looking at those things and I was like, well, the next one is Sally Can't Dance. <laughs> it's coming. Up. Right. That'll be an interesting. I was like, can I do one. that? Is that something that, that would that would work? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he played all of those songs live, but maybe we could figure out something to do with it. Um, maybe, you know, one of his least loved records. I don't know. I mean, people like some of it, but it's, you know, it's uh, maybe not quite as. Uh, held up there quite as high in the pantheon as some of the other ones uh yeah i guess i i guess i slightly fall into that category it's never the one that i'm reaching for yeah. but then again you know how often do you have a record like that that at some point becomes the one you're obsessed yeah, with? yeah i mean i, I mean? feel like that's yeah the one of the fun things about lou is that you can not listen to one of those records for years and be like oh shit this one is really good <laughs> actually I was like that with Set the Twilight Reeling. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't sure, you know. And then it's like at one minute, it's like my favorite. Yeah, you know? yeah. So. I mean, that's again like having somebody who has such a long career. There's just you know phases that you can get into. It's like somebody like Neil Young or Dylan, where it's you might not uh, vibrate appropriately with certain things at certain times in your life, but then you suddenly are like, oh shit, <laughs> he got it. <laughs> he, I understand yep. Now yep. what he was going for. Or not, maybe not. I don't know. Sally can't dance. It's funny. I saw uh, Robin Hitchcock last night, and he actually made a. He was, I don't know. He made some "Kill Your Sons" reference, and he and then he said, he said, "What if Lou Reed had called it Sally Can Dance? What would our reality <laughs> be like then?" <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh. who knows? <laughs> That's a good question, Robin. It's a good question. <laughs> Something to think about, at least. <laughs> excellent excellent anything else that you wanted to shout out i don't know um yeah I, I i feel like those are those are good ones um i mean there's always fun stuff to that pops up in in the the lou reed universe i mean there's people sending me stuff all the time that i'm like oh shit here comes another another thing that no one's ever heard or people are gonna look for and i'm sure that yeah the archives are going to continue to kind of have some kind of uh you know stuff stuff showing up um over the years i hope they have a lot of stuff that they're gonna dig it, into. I, it, it certainly it certainly seems like there's no shortage of, <laughs> of documentation my one, and cool stuff yeah my one probably and i i think that i've even like you know sent emails to maybe the archives i've always been like like what we really need is a you know 12 dicks disc uh uh, take no prisoners box set of all the all the sure. the complete uncut uh take no prisoners so that's my yeah that's my lou reed prayer for 2024 <laughs> well well this episode ends with me uh inquiring with the guys about one of my lou reed uh obsessions which is whether or not doug yule and him cut more stuff during the uh the uh, Coney Island oh, yeah, baby yeah, yeah. sessions right, right. because because Doug Doug was there for some of that stuff yeah. and they they've released bonus versions right. you know of some of the things but I'm I suspect that m more yeah. happened but I don't I don't know and I want to know a lot more about that reunion so maybe we'll see it'd be cool yeah I you mean know, that, that stuff with I mean because yeah there are bootlegs of the 1975 band with Doug Yule and they're great I mean it is sort of a funny but you're like. They like hated each other for, you know, the years leading up to that. And then suddenly it's just like they're back together and you're like, sounds like they have pretty good chemistry. They're enjoying themselves. <laughs> I mean, that's always the thing is that the chemistry must have been really good. Um, so yeah. 
Yeah, well, well, so we'll hear the guys address that and uh, a lot more. But Tyler, thanks for hanging out uh, oh, before we roll into this episode. Uh, before we do, I'll let folks know that if you dig transmissions and you love um, what we do, what Tyler brings to the side, and myself, Tyler does what? Band camping, you're a regular in the, the book club, you're obviously doing Radio Free Aquarium Drunkard on Dove Lab mixes uh your bonus tracks column well look there's a lot you know but if you dig the stuff that tyler does the best way you can support aquarium drunkard is to check us out over on patreon we rely on your support to pay contributors and keep bringing you the independent music journalism which i don't think we have to uh stress is slightly imperiled it seems these days on the online uh circuit but if you (laughs) (laughs) but if you're interested in helping keep it alive with our uh mixtapes reviews essays podcasts all of that interviews check us out over on patreon and uh yeah without further ado uh we'll get into it with the lou reed archive tyler thanks for stopping by we'll have to do this a lot more often this season no crap Don, Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. We're so glad to have you both back. Thanks for doing it. It's good yeah, to be back. Thanks for having us again. Well, we have all sorts of... We don't need a, a, a reason to talk to each other uh, in particular as Big Lou heads, but there are some cool... There's some cool Lou news uh recently hudson valley wind meditations was reissued by light in the attic i've been listening to the record and thinking about it and you know i it crossed my uh radar when it originally came out and i remember seeing the sounds true label associated with it and sort of assuming that it was a new age album to some degree you know and while it is a kind of meditation music or what you might classify as new age music, I don't think that that term really quite captures what this one is. It's a little too, it's not as settled as one might expect a new age album to be. What did you guys think when this originally came out? What sort of perception did you have of it? And what is exciting about getting it sort of back out into the world so that fresh ears can take a listen. Um, well, okay, sorry. Quick note. It's, it's Hudson oh, River. Oh, my God, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> easy, easy thing to say. Um, anyway, uh, just to get that out of the way, though. Uh, yeah, I mean, the it, it's, I don't know. At the time that Lou put out Hudson, uh, I don't know if it landed on Sounds True just because he shopped it around and nobody really bit, like the sort of conventional labels that he would, you know, sound out on putting this out or interested. I don't know. I don't I don't know the real um, chain of events there, but it landing on Sounds True, I mean, it still, I think at the time, seemed to him like a good fit for what this record was. Uh, it, it is a little oddball in retrospect to look back and uh kind of think about the way it was framed as or the way it was perceived as a new age release because that label was kind of dealing in uh yeah a lot of new age music and they had I, I think at the time some of the releases were being sold at like Starbucks counters and 
um, Whole Foods sure. maybe. I, I can't remember. But uh, anyway, it was, you know, partially a different time, partially the way Lou's music was being seen uh, was different, like at that point in his career. Um, and I think it's pretty cool that now we can put it out again, uh, give it this real deluxe release, put it on vinyl for the first time. And uh, people are coming to it and um, kind of accepting its context in a much different way than they had in the mid-2000s when it first came out. Yeah, I think we, we've we asked that same question of like, how did it end up on this sort of new AG label at the time? And have looked through a lot of old emails and, and talked to Hal Wilner about it. And he didn't really know either specifically, you know, how it how it landed there. But we sort of, you know, assumed to some degree that it was probably shopped around a bit by his manager at the time and that nothing really came of that. And this is where they landed. Um, I don't know that it doesn't, it doesn't seem at all like the label came to loot, <laughs> mm. you know, or anything like that. I think they just uh, found like, yeah, it's, it makes sense. It's a meditation base. It's in the title. So, you know, and, and I think it's interesting, though, because even while this record was being made and shortly after Lou was doing more music like this uh, and that we have and it's not music you would use for meditation it's electronic music it's still very similar still yeah. has a lot of the low end stuff going on but you you it's not restful it's you know it's engaging and so i think it's all part of that same thing and seen in that as the body of work he was sort of creating around this time uh it just ended up that this label was the right fit at that moment yeah I think it's interesting to consider how in 2024 should uh, an elder statesman, uh, somebody of Lou's caliber, you know, come out with an ambient work like this. I think there would be more, a, a, a sort of a, a, maybe a little bit more of a reception for it. I think people might be a little bit more keen on it now than they would have then, you know, um, I think that's what's happening. That's what we're seeing happen right now to our delight and surprise. Like the reaction has been really great. And I don't think he got that reaction with it the first time out at all. Right. Right. You know, I remember it being thought of almost as sort of a footnote, you know, in a lot of ways. And and that's it's it's good that, that there's been a reappraisal and that people have been given the chance to reappraise it because it seems to me like this was a project he was deeply passionate about. I kept thinking about how I know with The Art of the Straight Line, a, a book that features interviews with, with various people, but a lot of Lou's source writings. He was sort of the basis of the book. And I know that he wanted to write about Tai Chi, but he found himself sort of at the limits of uh, language. He found himself a, a little, he was having a hard time putting into words sort of what he wanted to get across. One, it's an incredible feeling to know that words can fail even Lou Reed, you know? Uh, it makes me feel a little bit better about my inability to uh, put my finger on certain things sometimes. But two, the fact that he could, he could do it sonically in a way, you know? And I know the liner notes also feature writing and stuff too, so it's not like it's a completely... Uh, left up to the individual to suss everything out. But I mean, it seems to me like sound 
was a vehicle that he could rely on to get across how much Tai Chi meant to him. And that's really a, I think that's really a fascinating situation. To me, it, it, it's, it's interesting to me that he was able to, he was able to, because there's the song, the in, an open, invita- open invitation, which is, uh, mm. that's Lou lyrically getting down with his like Tai Chi practice and sharing that with people. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that song, but uh, it's very different than Hudson River Wind Meditations. Yeah. Um, I mean, Hudson River Wind Meditation, well, I, I guess we'll get into this more, but it really was, um, it wasn't him sitting down saying, I'm I'm writing my next album. It was him sitting down at his you know, new uh, mini Moog Voyager keyboard and being like, I need to make some music that I can, um, that I can just have playing while I'm doing not just Tai Chi, but also he called it body work. Um, <clears throat> so it was really, it served a specific purpose for him in a very specific context. And, you know, he, which is kind of unique because how many musicians are making something not for other people to hear, but well, to fit a certain use case in their lives. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit out there in terms of like commercially released records. Yeah. Uh, Lou was not planning to put this out. He was not really planning to play it for other people necessarily. Like, and it's only after other I, people heard it, like at his place and would inquire, like, what's this? And why are you playing this every time I'm over here? Yeah. <laughs> that it became like yeah. someone and, saying, and it wasn't oh, even maybe just it like, should come out, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't just like someone would come over and we would be like, check this out. No, it would just be playing there. Like it, like, so I, I worked from Lou's apartment regularly for a couple of years and I'd sit in this one room and uh, uh, which was like connected by a little corridor to the main living room where, you know, the main speaker system was. And you would just hear Move Your Heart, the first yeah. track, emanating from the living room pretty much all the time, just pulsing, echoing through the rest of the house, through the apartment. And it was just the ambient music of his apartment like truly yeah. like just the thing that was always playing. Yeah. That's really cool. I remember I once interviewed um Steve Roach, the ambient and new age. Well, he doesn't like the term new age, but ambient or dark ambient or electronic musician. I interviewed him at his place called the Time Room, which is the studio where he records, but he also it's like a house, you know, so he stays there a lot. And I remember walking in and he just had his sequencer going, you know, sort of like all the time these little improvisations and you know you you think about people who devote themselves to a way of being and that concept of total environment is really important this idea of like shaping everything to your sort of um specifications so it's interesting that this served that for Lou that that's sort of what this was and that you know it was a what I mean did you uh, Jason this is uh hopefully not too uh goofy a question but did you get sick of it? Did you did you want some? Were you at, at any point like I've heard this too much, or how did it work on you? No, 
Uh, you know, it's it's really not intrusive. Um, uh, you know, the track "Move Your Heart" was the one that was predominantly playing all the time, right? And it's it's really a yeah. pulse. It's it's a it's a slow, unintrusive pulse. So I, you know, it never actually bothered me, and I believe me, I heard it day after day after day for the better part of two yeah. years. Um, <laughs> it it's there's nothing there to really grate on you. The tones are soothing. There's nothing real sharp going on. Um, it's it's durational. Uh, it really does just kind of calm. It's it's a calming kind of yeah. track. Uh, so I, if anything, it sort of, you know, it helps the vibe of like I'm sitting there working on whatever. Lou can, you know, working for Lou was the, the tempo varied a lot. Let's say like his uh, he you know, things could kind of change quickly and suddenly it's in a bit of a frenzy and actually having move your heart pulsing away was a good kind of regulatory, not metronome, but like it set a good pace for a calm environment. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I think about how I listened to Laurie Anderson on Jokerman, the Jokerman podcast, our friends, uh, and you know, I like thinking about Lou Reed practicing Tai Chi for lots of reasons, but something she put so beautifully that I hadn't quite like thought about was when you think about Lou and his artistic expression, for me, there is a violent side to it, obviously, you know, uh, just in terms of mm -hmm. sonic abrasion, lyrical, uh, lyrically, you know, he could go very violent places. Contrasting this and Lulu is a real fun thing to do because talk about these two sort of different sides of him. Um, but one of the things that I thought was so great was she was talking about how Lou would be doing Tai Chi and you'd be watching him work these these movements, you know, in the air, very still, very slow. You know, as he says in, in Invitation, you know, Tai Chi is slow. So there's like all this going on. But she's like, but essentially what he's doing is he's working out these like ways to kill somebody or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that that even within the peace and the sort of uh, uh, seemingly placid tranquility of a Tai Chi practice, there's an edge to it. There's a sharpness. There's a tenseness. There's a tension that's at work, too. And I mean, to me, it just it's it's like a perfect encapsulation of of Lou, you know what I mean? As in terms of those, uh, those sort of extremes is the way at least it feels to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, uh, yeah, I, I had also just listened to Laurie on Jokerman, um, the other day and I really did enjoy that part about her going into how Tai Chi is, uh, yeah, it's like murder in <laughs> slow motion, <laughs> like the sort of the mechanics of violence in slow motion. And uh, as you were just talking about it, it reminded me that um, Lou had this real affinity for uh, this short film by uh, filmmaker Maya Darren uh, called Meditation on mm -hmm. Violence, um, which uh, is uh, it's a, this it's just a sort of a portrait of a martial artist um, doing forms. Uh, you know, without actually being in combat. Uh, and it reminded me of, uh, you know, Lou was fascinated with this film. He, uh, I think he, I think he had curated it in a sort of martial arts night at the, uh, 
anthology film archives one time for this one event that he did with Master Ren as Tai Chi teacher. And uh, it's definitely a big connecting point in um, this trifecta with Tai Chi as a martial art and his practice of it and Hudson River meditations and how it fits into that practice. Um, you know, it's not that it's not that Lou was doing Tai Chi for any kind of he wasn't learning how to fight. I'll put it that way. Like it wasn't to like it wasn't like about self-defense in his case. It was really about improving his life and, uh, it, you know, kind of relaxing yeah. in a large way. Like I think it was very therapeutic for him body and mind wise. And Hudson River was the soundtrack to this process. Yeah, a lot of his passions are brought together in this project, and it, including his photography. And I right. was really happy that we could expand on what had been used in the beginning by using a lot of more, or at least some more of his photos. Uh, and I, you know, I'm a big fan of his photos, but again, they fall out of that range for most people of like, what Lou Reed's supposed to be about, like where's pictures of junkies on the street. And it's like Lou's photos aren't that they're pictures of buildings and like, you know, he's got a style, but it's, it's his own, he's created something that people don't associate with that Lou that is supposed to be, you know, grouchy old Lou or whatever. Right. Uh, so, but I'm really happy we were able to incorporate as much of that as we could into the project. And again, his, the level of passion he had for taking photos, Jason can really get into this as well, but like the, the cameras he had were just, you know, to him, instruments of God, you know, like the way he would go on about them and just the technology of it, it's the same passion he had for music and guitars and equipment. Just, you know, I, I'm happy we were able to get that in as part of this package. Did he have a pretty substantial camera collection, Jason? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just drawers full of cameras. Uh, you know, he he liked uh, he liked getting the latest and greatest. So there's there are quite a few Leica cameras. Sure. Just, you know, Leica would make a new model every so often and Lou would get wooed by the the latest and greatest and you know add another camera body to the collection and he'd obsessively use it for you know months or whatever and then another camera would come out and he'd get that one and he'd like be wooed by whatever that one specializes in yeah. and yeah I mean he was always jumping from like one camera to the next because like the guy the guy had dozens of guitars he had dozens of cameras right they go hand in hand. Yeah, it, we talked about that a little bit on the last one, how Lou was a gearhead and how he loved, you know, gadgets, new gadgets. And, you know, it made me think about what it might be. I mean, obviously digital recording technology was very advanced when he passed, you know, but in the last decade plus, I mean, there's so much has happened. It makes me wonder what, you know, how excited he would be to get access to some of this new technology in terms of, you know, digital modeling effects and plugins and all of the things that I have to imagine he would have been over the moon to play around with that stuff, you know? I, I think about it all the time, honestly. Um, I, I mean, just because I, uh, like, in my job for Laurie Anderson, we're very, I don't know, forward-looking with the tech 
So I, I just am always getting my hands on things where I'm like, oh my God, if Lou could like see this right now or if he could hear this, like, yeah, totally. I mean, he was uh, he was very much into the latest and greatest. And in terms of just seeing how, you know, whatever field is being pushed forward by innovation. So uh, yeah, he would, he'd be, if he were around today, he'd be right on the cutting edge of whatever interest he'd be having at this moment. And uh, yeah, it, it crosses my mind all the time whenever I come across some new plugin or whatever, like all the kind of AI stuff happening right now, like, you know, it's all a tool and Lou would at least give everything spin. Yeah. I, I, I obviously, I wonder what Lou would do with AI, you know? Um, um, and, and, and I also think that it's interesting to imagine that he would probably be open to playing with it and trying to figure out ways to use it in ways that maybe it wasn't intended or hadn't been thought about being used, you know, which is another one of the elements of his, his sort of process. I found myself thinking, because as I understand it, his Tai Chi practice was very, he was very committed to it. Um, what was his, like, w was he often, you know, working on Tai Chi while you guys were together? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, just about every day. Uh, it was just part of his his workout, um, his, like, daily workout regimen, his... Uh, his uh trainer master ren would um come by to the apartment uh i think it was every other day um for a two-hour session so it would be like i can't remember if it was like noon or something or 11 yeah. i think in the morning so i you know i'd be getting there at 10. um master ren would show up at 11. he'd spend two hours straight with lou doing tai chi and uh it would just you know i'd be like within earshot so uh, I'd hear Move Your Heart emanating. Um, they'd be doing their thing. And then when Master Ren was not there, Lou would be doing it on his own. So yeah, it was it was nearly daily of a practice. I, I listened to the great uh, Kitchen Sisters podcast also put together a bunch of really cool interviews. Uh, they did a really I good job. I love that. I mean, that was such a great listen and they do such a, they do such a good job, but it also felt... Uh, so generous. It's great to get to hear how Wilner, you know, reflect on things. But at one point they were talking that Lou was doing like four hours a day Tai Chi with Master Ren and like, and, and consistent. And that's just, it's so intense and it's so interesting to think about how committed he was to do a thing. And I imagine that that's like baked into his personality, right? That sort of like intense devotion oh yeah i mean he he lived his uh i i hesitate to even call it a hobby because it's a little more right than that. lifestyle uh, or something yeah yeah i mean these things were very much integrated into his lifestyle tai chi was there every day listening to music was there every day um you know uh <laughs> i don't want to you know lou loved food as well uh <laughs> i'm not gonna get into how often he like enjoyed a good burger or anything but uh that was a big part of his his sort of like day-to-day -day, uh the, the the pieces of his life that were always there um so yeah i mean it, these things were just like actual lifestyle uh components of his i wanted to ask about another we talked a little bit about his cameras and a little bit about his guitar collection um lou was really into swords too weaponry and you know, 
I wanted to maybe ask both of you just more broadly. Um, martial arts fandom is sort of like its own subculture, right? Uh, sort of kung fu heads, interest in these things. And it feels like that's something that really starts to bubble up into the mainstream in the 70s, right? I mean, sort of uh, Bruce Lee, things like that. Uh, I think of Kung Fu, the show, you know, all of this stuff. Was Lou just broadly sort of interested in like the martial arts on a pop culture level? You know, that's something I'd I'd be interested to hear you guys reflect on. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, um, he was he was going to see, uh, you know, when when um, martial arts movies were being screened in uh, like Chinatown. Um, decades ago he was he was checking that out uh when um uh i mean he was yeah his collection of like dvds and like sorry vhs sure. tapes of uh of martial arts stuff yeah there, there's a whole um there's a whole shelf of like vhs tapes that was still in his living room and magazines that yeah. was different like, a shelf of DVDs. yeah kung fu magazines there was quite there's quite a few in the collection yeah so he, yeah, he, he enjoyed that popular that culture side of it, you know, just from seeing what he collected himself. Yeah. Yeah. And then also just to kind of clarify the sword collection, like it's not like Lou was um, sort of buying up swords to add to like, like the shelf or whatever. Like it was a kind of, it was more functional than that. Uh, he was, he so, you know, you can do Tai Chi without weapons, but there's a side of it that involve forms that involve weapons i think there's four types of weapons so he'd practice all these different forms so master Ren would show up they'd be like okay today we're gonna do broadsword or today we're gonna do straight sword you know um but then when lou was traveling on tour he'd he'd continue to do tai chi he'd he would always have like uh whether it's um you know a hotel where they had a large enough fitness room where he could practice his tai chi there or he'd reserve the conference room so he could do tai chi there especially when master ren was touring with him um he would he would have to kind of bring different like either buy more of these weapons on the road because he couldn't travel with it or like for whatever reason like you know he'd have he'd have modified weapons that were like like sawed in half in the middle and then his guitar tech would add like um, what do you call it? Like a screw socket so that it can collapse into half length when it's in a road case and then get reconstructed so he could do Tai Chi in his hotel room. So like a lot of these things were functional purchases so that he could just do Tai Chi on the road without bringing like his nice sword or whatever. Like he'd have like just sort of, you know, cheap ones that he could functionally practice with. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that 
easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Yeah, that's some fascinating stuff. I think about how Lou, you know, physicality is such a part of his art, artistic output as well. Um, to go back to Lulu, when you reflect on Lulu lyrically, so much of it is about that loss of physical vitality, you know, uh, sort of like these feelings of, of impotence that inspire some of the most rageful music of his his career. But when you go back and you listen even to um, some of the like the 80s stuff or whatever, where like Lou is like into motorcycles and he's sort of like average guy, you know, and he's sort of like doing this sort of like, um, you know, I don't want to I don't know if I want to call it like a comment on masculinity or whatever. I don't know if comment is the right word. You know what I mean? But he's clearly somebody who is interested in, uh, y- you know, toughness to some degree, right? Uh, um, I don't know. I don't know exactly where I'm even even going with that. But when I think about his his desire to integrate his interests into everything he's doing, you know, um, to me, it it just makes me feel like. Like it just makes me that much more impressed how Lou's personality informed the art that came out. You know, I mean, taking Master Rin on the road for the for the Raven shows or whatever. I mean, who who is, is thinking I'm going to take Edgar Allan Poe? I'm going to take Tai Chi. I'm going to do all of this, and it's gonna it's gonna make sense, right? I mean, I don't think anybody but Lou really huh. puts those things together that way. Yeah, I, I, and and that's one of the sort of treasures of Lou's mind. Uh, he, he, um, he saw the flip side of things. He, he really had a vision for the multitudes, you know, for, for the, he, he could inhabit, uh, the, the lyrical content of Lulu, which is dark and violent. And he can, he can be, you know, doing that back to back with, an ambient record like Hudson River Wind Meditations that has zero lyrical content and is, you know, sort of the opposite of yeah. violence. Yeah. Um, he he kind of yeah. I mean, he had a vision for the bigger picture of things, which which is the flip side of one thing and or the the multitudes of existence. Like he he really like he was he was riding multiple planes at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, that's what great artists can do. I think that's why he, one of the many reasons why he qualifies. Uh, Don, you know, I'm curious. Obviously, when we think about Lou's discography, um, it's easy to think of metal machine music as a parallel or a sort of um, sideways cousin to this record. What what kind of experience did you have with that record when it first came out? Was that a record that that crossed your path when it was new? Yeah, I was in high school when Metal Machine came out and I had I had all Lou's records and I bought those right when they came out and I yeah. loved Metal Machine music and right from the start I just would put my headphones on in my bedroom cuz I couldn't be cranking that with my parents in the living room 
Yeah, they would have thought you lost it. Yeah, basically. And maybe I did. And <laughs> but in a good way. But that introduced me as a young person to this idea of drone music, of electronic music. It's like that, you know, that and and I mean, it was definitely one of the most commercially available records. I talked to a friend just a couple of weeks ago who told me he bought it at the time and literally thought it was defective. Sure. Back and got another one, took that one home, listened to that. And it was the same. And he thought, well, I got another defective one, I guess, and just put it away. And he said it was later he found out, oh, that's what it's supposed to sound like. So that story that it's like the most returned record ever or whatever, which Lou loved to tell. Right. I think that that's, you know, really people literally thought it was a defective record. It wasn't like, I don't like it. I want to get my money back. I hate it. It was just like, it's broken. <laughs> you need to take it back. So yeah. that, I think that, but for me, I was like, oh, I love this. Yeah. So, but yeah, I think there's certainly big parallels to us, to Jason and I, we've talked a lot about it and we're so into sort of figuring out Lou's technique on how he made these different things. And so much of it does go back to just this idea that he talks about of harmonics and creating a third harmonic from two harmonics. And He's done that with, that's what Hudson River does. That's what Metal Machine does. And that's what the drones do. Yeah. You know, Stuart's out as the drone wizard, you know, still doing this practice that Lou has fine-tuned from what, you know, everyone maybe first learned from Lamont Young and Dreamhouse. And, you know, when you were talking about Lou playing the music all day at his place, it did. It makes me think of Lamont Young doing that for the last however many decades in his living room and upstairs in the dream house. You know, yeah. you just live with the soundscape. And so, yeah, I think Metal Machine is like definitely <laughs> part of the same story and uh, has a lot of similarities, you know, and... And it was and it was a big focus for him too at this time, right? Because the metal machine trio stuff was kind of also That's in the same yeah. same and, milieu. And he issued the record, yeah, around the same time, and he was really, you know, it's all the same world, really. And I think he did them concurrently, as we see from from that. And, yeah, um, yeah. I posted on X about you know, finding great beauty in the fact that his last two albums are sort of alternately violent and, and peaceful, you know, and that these two sides really, uh, sort of show off who Lou was as a, as a creative individual. And somebody responded to me, yeah, I think metal machine music is more peaceful than, than Hudson. And I was like, I don't know if I agree with you, but maybe we just have he, different, you yeah. know, different, uh, but I might know what he means too. You no, know, I, absolutely. I know what he means. I mean, to me, it's very relaxing. It just kind of, it is a drone that just for whatever reason hits my brain in a way that just makes me want to just relax. So I do get that. And I find that Hudson River, the, the first piece is relaxful enough, but the other ones are a little challenging. And That's right. Again, like this other material that we have from that time period that, we hope to put out, I think, at some point, uh, called Purity, mm -hmm. that he did with uh, Sarth. Um, 
Calhoun's metal machine trio. Uh, you know, it's it's the same type of uh, you know, it's really that that those principles, but it's it's mm. also like it's not relaxing this right. stuff, the purity stuff. It's not meditation music. It's it's more like it's very similar sounding, but it's it's a a rougher ride <laughs> and i think it's amazing you know i mean i think we just we're trying to still we're still sort of finding stuff and getting our head around what it all is uh, yeah yeah i have to imagine that there's so much to parse through and so much sort of left in a semi-finished state or unfinished state or whatever but i hope that we hear that purity stuff stuff for sure I was thinking. Oh, go. Yeah, I, uh, oh, wait. Sorry. Just I want to clarify. Uh, Purity was a working title for Hudson, like Lou solo ambient stuff. Uh, Don, you're talking about Push. Oh, right, right. Push. Lou and Sarth, uh, which they did a. Um, yeah, it's like a soundtrack to a Master Ren Tai Chi DVD, ah. and I don't expect people to have really heard it that much unless they own Master Ren's Tai Chi DVD called Power and Serenity. But it's got a really cool soundtrack. And uh, it's, um, yeah, let's say somewhere in between, you know, it's instrumental. It's definitely more lively than Hudson, or dynamic rather. Sure. And uh, uh, not quite as noisy as Metal Machine, you know, kind of in between. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I wanted to ask about, I was kind of going through and thinking about some of my favorite Lou things that we hadn't touched on, on the last conversation. And I found myself revisiting, uh, the Vim vendors, 1993 movie, uh, far away. So close. And Lou has two cameos in that one. Um, the cameo yeah. that I like the most is, is when you see him, with headphones on and a headless yeah. guitar. I don't know the brand. I didn't. I didn't d dig enough to figure out Steinberg. Steinberg I, think. He, I know Lou wasn't opposed to those head headless guitars. They they make lots of appearances throughout. I have always found them just so objectionable. Uh, objectionable on an aesthetic level. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I also. I'm so amused anytime I see somebody using one, particularly Lou. And in Far Away So Close, it sounds so cool. But he's got a whole setup, and he's just sitting on a couch, right? And he's kind of working on a song. And Yeah, he's wearing headphones. And we're hearing what I assume you know, is what he would have been hearing, the guitar. And it sounds really incredible. I wondered, in addition to his Tai Chi practice, in addition to you know, burger eating practice or any of the cool things that make him a normal guy. What was his recording uh, sort of practice like? Was he often doing something like that where he's working with headphones on music or was that a more rare sort of occurrence? Uh, well, I, I can only, so just in my time with Lou, which was only the last two years right. of his life, I, I didn't get to, he wasn't, he, Lulu was kind of already in the can um i didn't see him recording music that much uh i did have the opportunity to be in his home studio with him um several times and that was always for just personally just like really cool but uh he wasn't at that point in those last two years of his life writing new music right, really right um but 
uh, there is an interesting story around his setup for Hudson River Wind Meditations, um, which was, uh, Don, remind me, what's the studio credited as on, on oh, its release? Uh, uh, Animal? Um, yeah. Animal, Animal Lab. Animal Lab. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if you look in the in the credits of uh, the original Hudson River Wind Meditations, it says, like, recorded at Animal Lab. And I think people were like, oh, like, that's a, what, where's that studio? Yeah. Where is that? So it's just a name Lou made up for his apartment. Uh, he has this, um, he had a he had an actual dedicated like soundproof studio in his apartment, but that's not where he worked on Hudson River Wind Meditations. I think he built that part of this apartment maybe after Hudson. I'm not sure, but uh, Hudson was done in this like little nook in the corner of his living room that uh, that's in front of a you know it's just it, it's in the corner and it's all glass floor to ceiling windows there overlooking the Hudson right. River and he'd have his uh his keyboard set up there there was a little PA and um you know he'd have some microphones and uh a Mac uh computer running Ableton I think at that time because he recorded uh most of Hudson and Ableton yeah. And uh, he he would uh, I, I think it, Hudson started with him field recording the sound of the wind uh, along the West Side Highway right. by the Hudson River, uh, just like sticking a microphone out the window or or maybe from the roof or something. Um, and he he'd start with just wind noise and then he'd uh, you know filter it, process it, um, you know, kind of isolate certain frequencies of it and and that's kind of layered in this and uh and then he'd build over it with the keyboard um you know build some patches and layer some stuff and uh it was this is i mean this is like the most stripped down uh in terms of a studio setup for lou for a record probably in his whole career i mean i think that's probably fair to say uh just because he would got started you know, at Pickwick at like a real recording sure. studio. So this is like the bedroom setup way late in the career instead of right up at the front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which also makes it, you know, when you compare like words and music, you know, there's also another sort of like that stripped down, not a particularly uh, produced thing in some ways. Although this is produced in because there's a lot of layering and a lot of using that mm -hmm. natural sound, but augmenting it and, and and playing around with it. It's a good point though. It's just done in a room, not in a studio, you know? And not necessarily with any audience in mind. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That's fascinating to think about. You know, but thinking about, I mean, I just kind of let my, my mind wander when I started thinking about that Vim Vendors, you know, movie, because I, one, I, lo I love, I, I, I really love that, uh, I really love all a lot of his movies, but especially that and and uh, until the end of the world, which Luz has another song that appears in that. I think a version of "What's Good" with Rob Wasserman playing bass. I love Rob as a as a bassist with Lou, and he's such a does such incredible David. stuff. Yeah, so good. Particularly on that song, I mean, it's just that Lou liked a a, a repetitive, you know, bass part, you know, that just kind of like. Uh, pulls the whole thing along, which I, so mm -hmm. I, I I revisited that and thought how great it was, and then that led me to his cover of 
because Peter Gabriel is also featured on that soundtrack. And I, as I understand it, one of the last things he recorded was a, a Salisbury Hill cover, right? Do you know where that came in the chronology in terms of like how that would relate to Hudson or Lulu or Winabouts that was? You know, I, I, off the top of my head, I don't really know like the order of operations sure, there. Sure. Um, That's a good question. Was the Salisbury Hill cover, what was that, wasn't that kind of done also in tandem with Power of the Heart, which Lou wrote and Peter Gabriel recorded? Yeah. Um, for his, uh, scratch, yeah, didn't, I think Peter Gabriel. Scratch my back or whatever well, that. Scratch my back. Well, I, know, I just pulled of. up yeah, yeah. the stems of it. And it's dated 2009. That's what the Salisbury Hill cover is dated. Yeah. 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 And then it came out, I guess, in like 2011 or something like that, uh, which is, you know, I, it got me thinking about Peter and Lou as contemporaries. And it's really easy to sort of think about them on similar paths to some degree, right? I mean, they're members of a, of a, of a, of a band. They established themselves as a solo figure. And then chiefly, um, you know, we're very uh, nurturing of younger artists and supportive of younger artists. Bowie was that way too, you know. Uh, most elder statesmen like that, they don't care what the young kids are doing. They all seemed interested to some degree, you know, in what people were doing. But I also really love that cover of Salisbury Hill because it's a really beautiful song on its own the original Lou locates hidden darkness in it. That is really impressive. You know, he also changes uh, the lyric. I think Peter says, my friends would think I was a nut. And he says, my friends would think I was a slut, which is a very Lou sort of like, you know, uh, 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 that's a Lou edit right there for sure. Yeah, but, <laughs> but it's really, yeah. yeah, it's really incredible. And it's really, um, there's a lot, I mean, I know like Lou worked with all sorts of different people, you know, uh, the killers uh, kind of was like, I remember being sort of surprised to go back and revisit that one and hear, you know, how sort of interesting that is. Also metric, you know. Gorillas. Yeah. So he was like working with lots of young, young people, but to hear him sort of in that same time zone, that time, you know, uh, approaching a Peter Gabriel song and reinventing it just really made me think about how, how plugged in he was until the very end, it seems not resting on any laurels and interested in exploring territory that he hadn't yet. Yeah. I, uh, you know, part of that, kind of goes hand in hand with being best friends with Hal yeah. Wilner. Um, you like, if you're just in Hal's orbit, you're being told about and like played a lot of music, not just new music, but just music period. Sure. So like, yeah, but you know, that's just Lou's natural interest too. Like he was, he was consuming new music at a, like in a really astonishing pace. I mean, I, you know, he and Hal were just constantly trying to get new stuff week by week to like play for each other, to find something good, to be like, Hey, check this out. No, you check this out. Like that was their vibe. I like, I remember being like that, like in my early twenties or course. something where like, I would just try to 
vacuum up like whatever as much new music as I could and then you kind of like it, it's it's a lot it it requires a lot of like dedication and interest to just listening like you you end up listening to a lot of like bad stuff to find the good stuff <laughs> and I I didn't have the stamina to keep up that pace and Lou was Lou and Hal were doing that like like you know I just I couldn't believe they were still like that at that point in their lives and clearly had been like that for a long long time it's it's really impressive when people just have the stamina to like keep chasing something new that moves them it's it's not the way it works for most people like you said that's a that's a an impulse that fades over time for the most part uh having read some of Lou's semi quasi like rock criticism from various points of his uh his day i would really relish the chance to sit in on one of those listening sessions with him and hal and hear him go off on something he didn't like uh i can imagine that being that could be very fun <laughs> i um i i suppose one way to do that would be make your way to the um New York Public Library, Library Performing Arts. Uh, you go to the finding aid for the Lou Reed archive and you pull up um, the original project files for New York Shuffle. Not not the bounces, yeah. but uh, the raw Ableton sessions that uh, I was recording. And if you listen to um, the mic feeds, just listen in between when they're listening to the music or no, 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 listen to their mic feeds while they're listening to the music and you can hear them talking. They're yeah. chatting, talking about the music. That's kind of the closest thing you can do right now if you want to hear Lou and Hal just like, you know, talking shop or whatever. Like <laughs> you just listen to those raw recordings of New York Shuffle. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I'm glad that that resource is available, that people can get that sneak peek behind the curtain or whatever was it it was Hal that introduced Lou to Anoni's music right am I am I making that up yeah correct uh the story is that Hal um was at Tower Records um you, you know the one that used to stand sort of near Union Square can't remember the exact location but anyway at that Tower Records Hal was at I think the listening station um, you know, they had they used to have the little listening stations with, with a selection of various things. And he picked up um, Anoni's, I think, first EP mm -hmm. um, and just listened to it and uh, was astonished, just like blown away, bought it, took it to Lou, was like, listen to this. Like it just like they would do with whatever else they were you know, getting into or discovering, one would take it to the other, be like, you need to hear this. And then um, <clears throat> I think, uh, yeah, Lou was just completely taken by Anoni's voice. Um, and, you know, what was like, I need to work with this person. Well, actually, or like helped orchestrate uh, Anoni's first record deal. I think Lou put it in a really good word and was like, you need to sign this person. Yeah. And that's kind of how it worked out. Um, but I, you know, I leave it to Anoni to tell her story. Uh, I, I don't want to sort of paraphrase something and get it wrong necessarily. Yeah, I just I think about how 
clearly how much Lou loves loved her voice, you know, and how drawn to it he was. And when I was listening to her most recent record, which is just like unrelentingly brilliant, uh, yeah, so strong. one of those records that you know, and Lou has stuff like this too for me, where it is uh it's like appointment listening you you sit down and decide to listen to it but you're not going to like necessarily just throw that record on i wouldn't you know what i mean like i'm just going to put something on right. as i'm going about my day that's more like you got to sit down and listen um and it's a particularly sort of sumptuous record this and r&b flavored so it's not even like it's like hard to listen to on those terms but it just demands a lot from you lou is like that too and i think the fact that he was so drawn to her voice speaks a lot to what he looked for in a vocalist you know or what he looked for in in music uh which is really which is really powerful and to hear her on that kitchen sisters podcast which we'll link to in our description here so folks can check that one out as well but to hear her talk about what it was like to have lou like her right away and 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 not just sort of like want to work with her but really really connect I, that was really moving to me and um and i think i said I, I had mentioned to you guys that i had written about lulu a few years back for stereo gum and uh and i had called it like lou's most powerful late you know late career work or whatever and i got an email from somebody that was like you know metallica's whatever but everything Lou did with Anoni is his most powerful end of career stuff. And I, I kind of, I, could, I couldn't wow. really argue, you know what I mean? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, just, yeah. One example of that would be the Berlin uh, concert film um, with Anoni. And really anytime Anoni's spotlight uh, singing um, backup or taking kind of, lead on candy yeah. says yeah um really really incredible powerful performances yeah. there well guys it's been such a huge pleasure to to let it rip with you again before we we wrap things up i have to ask you guys just because this is the sort of thing i'm always interested in when i come across something um that kind of piques my interest like this and i i know obviously everybody knows the doug yule saga and how doug you know, um, sort of was handed the the Velvet Underground, and I think it's probably fair to say it was an ill-advised choice to cut another Velvet's album. Uh, I like Squeeze more than some folks do, uh, particularly a few songs on it. But something that I was really interested in talking about and just seeing if the archives have yielded any more information on this, but I know Doug got called in to the Coney Island Baby Sessions as well, and I know that there is a... There's a version, there's some some songs where he's playing, I think bass is what he's credited as. Do you guys know if there was more in that sort of like uh, from those sessions? Did Doug and Lou have some sort of rekindling at that point? Or what, what light can you guys shine on that, if any? Uh, I, I wish I knew more about uh, the real dynamics yeah. at the time. I. I can tell you just based on like the evidence we have, which, you know, it's not like there's a lot of uh, Doug Ewell related stuff in the Lou archives, but uh, there are, and we, we kind of, we put this on display in our exhibition from last year. Um, 
we had a little section, um, like a little wall that was a, a little Doug centric. And it was, it was just like a nice letter from Lou to Doug. Um, and it was just our way of being like, there wasn't real like animosity here. Like there was mutual respect and Lou was, you know, very kind. Uh, and I, I can at least say they had a cordial relationship at the very least. Um, I, I wish I knew more about the Coney Island sessions. Uh, but I do know that the producer of that record, Godfrey Diamond is still around and, um, I know he does interviews once in a while. Some, I mean, you should we'll have talk to track to him, him down. Do like a Coney I mean, thing. yeah, yeah, he's he's totally out there uh, and and doing stuff. So you should you should kind of ask him about this because I'd love yeah. to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Coney, wasn't I... much to find. There wasn't really much of anything in the archive that we have, and there probably is a bit over at Sony. Sure, that's who we should talk to about it probably and see if they have anything, but. Um, I like the story that's circulated recently that David Bowie went to see the VU and mistakenly thought Doug was Lou and spoke yeah. to him. And they, they've both been interviewed about it. And Doug was interviewed about it. And he said people used to do that, but he remembered it specifically, this little young British kid. And Bowie left the thing thinking he had met Lou. Yeah. <laughs> found out later that he hadn't. But he wrote Queen Bitch really about Doug, not Lou. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean that's fascinating stuff and it's also not um I I think that there are probably a few people out there who maybe think that Lou is singing sometimes when it's when it's really Doug. You know what I mean? Uh on on loaded or whatever. Maybe you know if you don't really inspect the credits or really pay all that much attention, you can sort of Oh, Lou sounds pretty good on this one or whatever, you know. Uh, so I think that that's that's really funny. And and I am, you know, this is the, uh, listeners will notice that this is going to end up being a theme because every time I can bring Doug Ewell up, I end up bringing Doug Ewell up on this podcast. He shows up some other <laughs> some other times, too. But I, it's, I think it's in part because I really do. One, I would love for him to come on this show, and there has been some entreaties att attempted. Uh, he's not interested in talking so much, uh, it seems. But um, but who knows? I've got my fingers crossed. His wonderful daughter has been very, very kind and uh, humored some of my requests and stuff. So who knows what'll happen? But um, but I'm always interested, and uh, and I and I like to know that Lou you know, had some, I know, I know he had respect for Doug. It's very clear. And, uh, and that version of Coney Island baby, the song that they do together, it sounds great. I really like, I mean, that's one of my favorite songs of Lou's anyway, but to hear a yeah. version with Doug in there, it's just a nice, nice little treat. Um, so, uh, well guys, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for, again, the continued work that you've done bringing these new Lou treasures to light and, uh, these under recognized, Lou works and so I just can't wait to see what you guys do and uh if we end up making you know an annual podcast a tradition you know uh, I'm happy to do it because it's always great to to be with you both thank you for your for your time yeah oh yeah we we love coming on and talking with you I mean the, you know between the last time and this time like the the conversation takes some really fun twists and turns it's it's a really interesting conversation to have with you so yeah you're really good at kind of uh drawing connections and asking uh asking interesting questions um yeah it's it's really fun talking well, to you. thank you guys so much I hope you have a great rest of your day and uh 
be well. Thank you, guys. All right. Thanks. Bye. Take it easy. Thanks. Bye, Have guys. Thanks so much for spending time with us here on Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. We know you have a lot of listening options out there on the World Wide Web, so we're honored that you'd carve out time to spend with us here. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music comes from Frank Mastin, drawn from his discography of library music. You can find more of it by visiting mastin.bandcamp.com. That's M-A-S-T-O-N bandcamp.com art for this episode was created by ian everett and our executive producer is justin gage aquarium drunkard's founder don't miss his weekly radio program the aquarium drunkard show on sirius xmu channel 35 at 7 p.m pacific time each and every wednesday night transmissions is part of the talkhouse podcast network visit talkhouse for more interviews fascinating reads and podcasts Next week on the show, I am joined by Ty Seagal for a fantastic conversation about his new album. It was a real blast getting a chance to speak with that prolific artist. I hope you will come back and hang out with us. In the meantime, be well. This transmission is concluded. <laughs>